And the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 20 to 25. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord... All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. One of the great themes of uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah is that idols uh, have no power and cannot save. Uh, you might think that it really doesn't apply to the United States. We don't, we don't see a lot of statues. Uh, we don't see a lot of religious figures that are... A plaster of Paris, uh, but on the other hand, more and more, I think we are seeing those things. Uh, people uh, pray to images, they pray to pictures, they, they look to perhaps something that in a vague sense might represent God. Uh, the prophet Isaiah is warning us away from those things. Uh, even more critical, the apostle John closes out his first epistle with these words, little children, guard your hearts from idols. Very interesting that uh, the entire epistle is written about uh, false views of the faith, as if false theology is an idol because people find their hopes uh, in truths that are false. Well, idolatry is a really an all-encompassing thing, much beyond an image. It really is a false religion, and all religion is false, save that which is revealed in Holy Scripture. That is where the prophet is taking us. And here he will document that in the fact that idols cannot save, but God can. And he has power to save, and he will gather all of the world under his power, and he will teach us the content of uh, the people of God, and even the lost will express the true content of the faith found in the text that we have read this morning. Well, God begins the text with a convening of Gentiles. It's very instructive because the Old Testament prophets envision a time in which God will gather the nations. Here there is reference to that. He is convening uh, the Gentiles. Uh, it is a court scene in which uh, the fugitives of the nations, again, nations, he's reaching beyond the nation state of uh, Israel, convening the nations as defendants. 
And so if uh, God is convening the nations at a court scene, it means uh, they're in jeopardy. He's the judge. They're the defendants. He's going to prosecute them. Uh, it's a reference uh, to men under judgment. Uh, they are further defined in a very characteristic way in the prophet Isaiah as idolaters, carrying their word idols and praying to a god. Notice what the text says about the idols. They pray to a god who cannot save. Now, I would remind you that idols can ruin you, but they cannot save you. Uh, they can ruin you because behind every idol, of course, uh, it's the kingdom of, of, uh, of darkness, uh, energized by the forces of uh, Satan and the devil. So it can ruin you, but they cannot save you. Uh, he also says uh, in a telling description of those who follow the idols that they do not know. It's very instructive because uh, it's a reminder that ignorance is culpable. I'm convinced that one of the reasons people kind of shy away from religion, shy away from the church, shy away from Christianity is they have this deep, dark secret in their hearts that, well, if I don't know, God can't hold me responsible. Well, of course, that's folly. Uh, you're culpable, and ignorance is culpable uh, in light of who God is. And as judge and prosecutor, God commands the defendants to come and make their case for salvation with their gods. That's the entire point of the 21st verse. Uh, make your case before me, God is saying. Of course, the courtroom is silent because they can make no case. Idols can't save. They have no power, uh, no case to be made. Uh, the sum, of course, of all perfection, uh, God himself is impeccable. Uh, he questions them about uh, their ability to predict the future, to affect restoration and a new creation. Once again, the courtroom is silent. But he is not silent. He tells the defendants, latter part of verse 21, there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Very telling statement in light of our very politically correct culture. Constant notion that uh, every religion is uh, on equal grounds and we're all going to the castle and wherever the castle is, and here God, in one short, compressed, laconic sentence, is decimating that theology. He says they're all rubbish, they're all trash, there's only one God, and there's only one God that can save. We are treated to the absolute and total exclusiveness of the God of Scripture. All deities save him are negated. Again, it's not my words. Uh, if you have an anger with that, simply look at the Scripture God is uh, confronting the nations in a courtroom. Uh, he is the sole judge, and he issues a dynamic, incredible statement uh, with his entire impeccability established. Everyone but him is false. All religions are trashed, save that which is revealed in Scripture. So, might well imagine the courtroom is... Uh, now settled with gloom uh, because God has caught them in their error. But something unique happens, as it always does in Scripture, in light of messages of judgment. There's a call of grace. He summons the nations, again, nations, the Gentile nations, uh, in a universal invitation. Verse 22, 
In grace, God invites the guilty. He calls them the ends of the earth. So he's encompassing all of civilization, all of life, every nation, regardless of its name, regardless of your patrimony. He summons the nations. There are two imperatives in the summons. Turn to me, God says, and be saved. Good reminder for all of us that the gospel is for all. Uh, It's also a reminder that in light of the invitation that God is gracious, that there is still time because he summons that we can still come to him and that in him there is salvation. But the object, and, and again I ask you to turn to the text, the object is solitary. He doesn't say turn to the gods of your choosing. He doesn't say you pick one and if it works for you, that's fine. No, he says turn to me. That if you are corning salvation in anyone but the God of Scripture, you are chasing an idol. However you do that, I don't know. But the scripture is clear, God is clear. If you're going to turn and be saved, you can turn but to one God, and that is the God of Scripture, because salvation is only in Him. You turn anywhere else and to anyone else, all is lost. The offer is universal, but the condition is restrictive to but one God and the God of Scripture. Again, the explanation is, I am God, there is no other. Let's look at a New Testament commentary to this uh, reality. If you have your New Testament, I trust you do. You can look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, in verses 5 and 6. I'm going to give you a hint of uh, who we turn to, but also the content of salvation in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 5 and 6. For there is one God... And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at a proper time. So he's telling us, Paul is, just like the prophet Isaiah, who to turn to and what he has done. He ransomed his church, his people. Again, you turn anywhere else. You've just turned to an idol. It's a universal summons but the object is entirely restrictive. I I understand that our culture would flunk the prophet and the apostle. I understand this wouldn't fit in well with our own culture, but again, it's not ours to choose and to pick and determine because God is God. He sets the course. He sets who is to be worshipped and how God is to be worshipped, and everything else is simply a carrying an idol about that cannot save. The prophet, of course, uh, in this summons is anticipating salvation absent ethnicity because it's to the nations, that God is going to go beyond the nation of Israel uh, to all of the Gentile nations. It's very instructive to me as an aside in terms of biblical theology that Isaiah does not fully comprehend that it will be a salvation absent the ceremonial law of Israel. But nonetheless, that is the truth that New Testament authors will unpack uh, and identify uh, with Christ as the true Israel. It's 
good to remember in the uh, 500th year of the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, the great hymn by Martin Luther, the great line, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. That ultimately Christ will define Israel in himself and that whoever identifies with him will be marked out as the people of God. So we have a court scene. We have a scene of judgment. We have a scene of grace. We have an invitation. We know who to turn to. But we're now going to look at what turns us to the one true God of Scripture. But the invitation is now followed by accountability in the end time salvation and judgment, verses 23 to 25. Again, the principle is grace and responsibility. The principle is we turn to God, uh, but what's going to turn us to God? And again, it's the acts of God, and ultimately the prophet will teach us about the content of true faith. We're going to begin with the act. We're, we're turning now from a summons to the power of God uh, to bring the nations. Verse 23, God swears. He swears by himself. That's instructed because God is his own affirmation and he validates himself. God doesn't bow before our system of understanding. He doesn't bow before our court of justice. He doesn't ask us to validate him by virtue of the fact that he's God. He validates himself. There's no higher power, no greater authority, but the God of Scripture. And the basis of the oath is most instructive. The basis of the oath that he takes to himself is the inviolable, irrevocable, and efficacious word of God. Again, Isaiah chapter 45 in verse 23, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. In other words, God is dispatching his word to gather the nations in either salvation or judgment. It is an incredible affirmation of the power of God. I, mean, I, I can tell you that... Uh, in my role as a father, I have issued a lot of commands uh, to my children. Would that they were efficacious. <laughs> They're not. Uh, when I was in the service, I had the privilege of, uh, on occasion, holding command authority. Uh, I well knew that oftentimes people would try to subvert my command authority and do what they dadgum well wanted to do on their own. But you cannot do that with God. His word is all-powerful and efficacious, and wherever he dispatches it, it will accomplish his good pleasure by virtue of the fact that he is God. You and I can issue commands. We can write rules and regulations until the cows come home if they ever do. But when God speaks, it's going to happen in light of the fact that he is God. The point of the text is that it will not return empty. The Greek translation has... It cannot be turned away or turned back. In the present, the word is now at work gathering for the end time salvation. In other words, from the courtroom, God dispatches his word to go gather 
And the first part of the gathering, of course, is the end time salvation. And that word cannot be denied. It will fulfill its task. It will create the very condition for which it was sent. The word will accomplish the very purpose for which God had ordained it. And again, God is simply speaking his word. And we know when God speaks, things are going to happen. I bring to you simply Genesis chapter 1. What does God do to affect the creation? Does he go hire a committee? Does he go hire an architect? Does he go into the yellow pages and find a contractor? Of course not. What does he do? He speaks. And things erupt in happening. God speaks and there was light. That's all God needs to do. And to affect the end time gathering of all of the nations, God is simply going to speak. And of course, there's going to be the effect which God intends. Very interesting to me that the writer of the book of Hebrews understands something of the theology when he writes in chapter 4 and verse 12 that the word of God is alive and powerful. It energizes to affect the very end for which it was ordained. In that sense, it cannot be denied. In terms of the gathering of the elect for salvation, uh, that's validated for us a number of places in the New Testament. If you have your New Testaments, if you would turn to the book of Acts, something of this in Acts chapter 12, 24th verse. Uh, God speaks, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. The word was effective. It was efficacious. It goes forth through the ministry of the apostles and the church is created in the days of the apostles. Same thing, Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. What else could it do? It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of God. It's the word that creates, that speaks and things happen number of examples of this that speak to the sheer power of the word of God in salvation, that God saves by the power of his word. Again, turn with me, very well-known passage, I trust, John chapter 11. A friend of the Savior has died. And so our Lord goes to his tomb. What does he do? Does he consult with some physicians? It's too late for that, isn't it? Does he beat his breast and say, if I would have just been here three days earlier, I could have done something about it. It's going to do something that's very unique as a reference to the sheer power and the magnitude and the majesty of God that when he wants something, all he has to do is speak and things happen. John chapter 11, verse 43 and 44. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, and he who had died came forth. 
In other words, the word of the Lord was like a weapons platform. It fired into the tomb. It was directed to Lazarus. It resurrected him from death, and he came forth. That's all that Jesus had to do was to command. And the command is obeyed. Death obeys Christ. I would submit to you the reality that there are a lot of forces in this world, and I'm not unmindful that some of them are good and some of them for evil. This is one of the greatest expressions of the power of God in that Jesus speaks and death obeys him. He's the only power I know of that death obeys. Once the physician acknowledges that there's death, eventually he's going to fill out some paperwork. But everything stops. The emergency workers quit. Nurses pack up their equipment. Whatever it is they do in an emergency room, and God bless them for those who do it. But they have no power beyond the grave. The point of the text is that Jesus does. The greater reality is that he saves spiritually. And how does he do that? He speaks his word, and life erupts because he is God. Acts chapter 16, it's acknowledgement of this power in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. She was listening to the word of God and what happens. Notice the text. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by the Apostle Paul. I suspicion that the Apostle Paul was a great preacher, but he had no power over the heart. Only God does. And that's why the simplicity of the force of the simple sentence and the Lord. Notice the subject. The Lord opened her heart. That's how there's salvation, the power of the word of God. It is dispatched by God, referencing his eternal decrees. Lydia is targeted, and the heart is opened. We would suspicion, would we not, well, Lydia would say, Lord, can we talk about this? Can we have a council, and maybe uh, uh, you can get some things that you want, and I'll get some things that I want, and we'll kind of measure this out? The Lord speaks, her heart is open. She comes to faith. If you're a Christian, and I understand there were numerous means at work. Perhaps your family was praying for you. Perhaps uh, a godly neighbor was praying for you. Uh, maybe uh, you were in a church. Maybe you were driving on a highway, saw a billboard. Uh, maybe you read a tract. I mean, I simply don't know, but the importance is goes beyond the simplicity of the word that is before us. It's the fact that God energizes the word and Lydia's heart is open. That's how the power of God works. The point of Lazarus is Jesus but speaks. Here God energizes the word preached by the apostle Paul. Lydia's heart is open. I understand I can preach the word. But behind it must be the power of God to open hearts. That's the power of the word of God. It is a realm in which only God can work. And God does as he's gathering the nations. I don't know what you might subscribe to in terms of your coming to faith. 
Many means may have been used, but ultimately, God opened your heart. He spoke a word, and your heart was open. There's another beautiful example of this in the same passage in verses 28 to 30. Philippian jailer is about to kill himself. He's uh, failed in his duty as a jailer. He knows that Rome will get him, so he's going to dispatch himself. Paul preaches a very short sermon. Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And the Philippian jailer turns to the Apostle Paul and says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? He knows the power of God is present in opening the prison. That only God could do that. And God does, and he confronts the apostle. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, and you and your household. That God had moved upon his heart, affected a miracle. Things happen when God speaks. I, I simply uh, tell you that I can speak all day long and nothing may happen. When God speaks, the elements of the universe stand at attention, salute and obey. Hearts, henceforth closed to the gospel, say, I want none of that. That's your opinion. I've got my own God. But when God speaks and targets the heart, the heart opens. In light of the majesty and the singularity and the power of God in speaking, that the word goes forth and does not return empty. It doesn't turn back without securing its object. The power of the word of God the act of the word in creating salvation. I might remind you that that is, in a sense, the essence of the Protestant Reformation, a recovery of the importance of the word of God to create light. The importance of scripture is the divinely important means to call and equip the people of God and to create light in hearts that have henceforth been incredibly dark. Well, of course, if you think of the chain of what's happening, there's a summons, there's an invitation, there's the power of the word of God in the invitation, and now, of course, accountability to the content of the word. And the content here is that the word gathers all for both salvation and judgment. God takes an oath. He tells us the basis of the oath in his word, and now the content, most instructive. Again, Isaiah Chapter 45, we're turning from the power of the word of God to the content of the word of God, from power to content. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 23. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Uh, the Greek translation has confess, and that's what's picked up by the apostles in the New Testament, the Greek translation. But notice, notice again something that's most instructive. To me. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Again, I understand the reality of our culture. Well, a Grace Bible Church has its God and there's this religion over here and whatever makes you happy whatever enables you to feel good and to sleep well at night, but God has otherwise. He says, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess to me. 
It's not a pick and choose. The reality of the truth of Holy Scripture, there is but one God and one God only who has the power to save and to gather. In the present realm, he is gathering his people in salvation. But the content is that they are turned to him. The word of God brings all for an accounting in either faith or force, either voluntarily or involuntarily. In the end time judgment, every knee, every tongue will have one content of confession before the everlasting Lord of glory. When God dispatches his word in the end time judgment, you will not be able to say, well, Lord, uh, I choose not to come. You're going to be brought. You cannot say, Lord, can you wait? Uh, let me kind of figure out some things and get my affairs in order. Uh, give me 10 minutes, Lord. No, the Lord will bring everyone either voluntarily or involuntarily in either salvation or in judgment. For an accounting of the faith. Notice what we should withdraw from that, that today is the day of salvation. I don't know when the word of God is going to gather all for the end time judgment. I know that today is a day. Uh, trust in God's providential power and in his word, he will energize the word to gather his people. It cannot be denied. If you're not a Christian, you don't know Christ, you have served everything, perhaps even yourself. None of it will work. None of it will protect you. You must turn to the one true God and only Savior. And you will be brought willingly or unwillingly before the end time accounting. And all will confess, lost or saved, all will confess the supremacy and singularity of God in salvation. They'll have the same confession. The word will gather all at the end time judgment and compel all to recite and submit as so stated. Again, I will read again Isaiah chapter 45. Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Very interesting that Paul cites this text. The Apostle Paul picks up Isaiah. He uses it in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 to 11. Uh, he's speaking in light of the majesty of Christ and what he has done to secure his church by ransom of himself. And in light of the fact that Christ gives all in shedding his blood, he's going to give, God is going to give Christ all honor and glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the greater fulfillment of Isaiah now stands and falls upon the majesty of the Son, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ in light of his ransom. It's an accolade of Christ for his humiliation that the depth of his sacrifice brings the highest acclaim of God in all of history. I mean, I love our culture for all of 
uh, the accolades we give out, the statues we give out. Uh, there's a hall of fame for everything in America. In the end times, there's but one accolade. And whether you're lost or saved, you'll give it to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, the only Savior of all time. Everything else will be scattered and consigned to the dustbin of history. Every knee will bow before Christ and confess who he is. Notice, notice the content of the confession, verse 11, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lost or saved, that is the end time confession of all of humanity. Hopefully it's for salvation that that will be your confession. But that is the content of how you come to faith. You confess Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory for the majesty of God the Father and the gift of God the Son. He gave all and the Father returns all. It's interesting, is it not, that it is an explicit affirmation of the deity of our Savior as identifies him with the God of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 45. I, on occasion, run across people that will confess that uh, Jesus was, was, uh, was created in time and he became a God. This text would be one explicit denial of that folly because it identifies Christ with the God of Isaiah chapter 45, the eternal God, the one true God, the Son of God, the majesty, the greatness of God. In the end time judgment, all will acknowledge Christ, either willingly or unwillingly, salvation is only by him and in him and for him. And God the Father has so ordained it as Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11 has in the purity of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the only redeemer of the people of God. It's very interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul is in a measure refining a bit of the content of the confession found in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 24. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Only in the Lord. You know, you get out the yellow pages and there's every stripe of religion every color, every taste, you pick it, it's there. But the end time judgment, everyone will say only, only in the Lord. Whether lost or saved, two different parties, one confession. If you're not a Christian, it's a confession that you could make today as the word goes out calling the people of God and will one day go out and gather all for judgment and accountability if you're in Christ, you're saved. Notice as a refinement of that content, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. It's an acknowledgement that Christ has the power to bring. The strength is a reference to his power when he speaks a word to gather his own. Only in the Lord. The source of salvation is divine. He has what we need and the power to advance it. Again, Paul has the fulfillment in Christ. Once again, I would commend to you the reality that everything else save him is an idol. And everything else save him will fall under eternal judgment. Only in the Lord is there salvation. If you reject the Lord, you'll have that same confession. 
but it will be to your ruin. There is one confession, two outcomes at the final judgment. Let's look at that outcome here in the prophet Isaiah. The first outcome, compelled by the word, is the humiliation of those who are lost. All who were angry at him shall be put to shame. Interesting way to describe the lost, is it not? The older I get, I find people throughout my personal experiences get mad at God for whatever reason. I don't know. There's lots of terrible and bad things that happen in life. It's instructive to me that we live in a fallen universe, so therefore things are going to happen that run against us because the world is under curse. So you get angry at God. God will judge that. You'll confess who he is at the end time, but it will not work to your salvation. It will work to your ruin because you rejected him, you neglected him, you pursued your idols. They will be shamed put to shame. The second outcome, verse 25, in the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. So those who have been faithful to the Lord will be justified and of course brought into everlasting glory. Really don't have time to flesh out the understanding that uh, the truth of Israel ultimately falls upon Christ, who is the true Israel, and that all who are identified with him become true Israel in him. Nonetheless, I believe that's uh, the ultimate teaching of all of the Old Testament, and certainly that's the clarity of the teaching of the New Testament. Uh, you want to be justified with Israel, you must identify with Christ. No one else. There is salvation in no one else but him. And they're vindicated for her loyalty to the Lord. It's a theological problem here. Simply dispatch it as quickly as I can. Justification is not based on allegiance. Rather, their loyalty is evidence or demonstrative of true faith and the imputed righteousness of Christ. You seek salvation. Justification is found in Christ. He gives his righteousness to the lost that they might become the righteousness of God in him. Everything else will be put to shame. God doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't accept idols. He accepts the work of the Son done in place of our works that can only bring folly and ruin. Again, one summons one content, Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is simplicity, the message of the promise of God to the nations as he sends out his word to gather his people. At some point, there will be an end time judgment and the word of God will summons all to judgment and all who are in Christ will be gathered to everlasting glory. Everyone and everything else will be consigned to eternal punishment. Clear teaching of the Testaments. Instructive, is it not, of the power of God? The end time judgment, God will speak. Those buried in the bottom of the sea will rise again to face God. 
Those who are frozen somewhere in wastelands like North Korea, if it's winter time, God will raise them up by the power of his word. They will become thawed and go before the Lord. There is not a hole that can hide you. There's not a mountain that can fall on you, John tells us in the book of the Revelation. All will be made to stand to go before God. And now you know not only the power of God, but the content of a true confession for salvation to know Christ, to know him, to know the forgiveness of sin. Absent that, you will make the same confession, but that you will be confined to everlasting ruin. That's the summons to the nations, to the Gentiles, the power of the word of God, the content of the word. May God bless it for salvation this day in the hearing of the word of the Lord for the glory of Jesus Christ, the only redeemer of the people of God.